Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I'm Martin Strong in for Roy Green this weekend. Do you ever have this experience? Uh, there's something you've never heard of. You're living your life oblivious to whatever that thing is, and you're fine. And then suddenly, within a week, you suddenly hear about this thing everywhere you turn. It seems like everybody is talking about it. It might be TikTok, might be Ted Lasso. Uh, but more recently, it's ChatGPT. Everybody seems to be talking about ChatGPT and artificial intelligence. If you're a university student, you probably know all about it. ChatGPT is an app which uh, just launched this past November. It uses artificial intelligence to scan the internet, sort it out, decide what the key points are, and use that information to generate content, really sophisticated content in a way that is uh, nearly impossible to tell that it was not written by an actual human being. It's artificial intelligence at a, at a much higher level than, say, when you're on a, a car dealer's website and a chat bot is trying to answer your questions about setting up your next service appointment. Uh, and this past Tuesday, Canada's Privacy Commissioner announced an investigation of OpenAI. That's the company that launched this new app, citing privacy concerns. Because when accessing information to use to make this content... Chat GPT will use whatever is out there. Might be something you've written. But another concern is coming from universities and other schools. Chat GPT is literally made to research and create essays for 20 bucks a month. That could save a student a lot of time, if you don't mind, you know, a little cheating. But its effects on education are much more than that. And with me now is Alpha Abebe, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Humanities at McMaster University, and Fenella Amarasinga, a PhD candidate at the uh, Faculty of Education, York University, Canada. Thanks for being here, you guys. I'll, I'll start with you, Alpha. Uh, sure. First off, uh, you heard how I described chat GPT. Uh, did it seem accurate to you? What am I missing? Yeah, no, I think, I think you did a really great job of, um, you know, breaking it down in layman's terms. I think part of the challenge that a lot of, uh, people are having, um, in trying to generate public discussion about this tool and platform is that it, it can seem very convoluted and technical. So I think it's really important and helpful to, to break it, break it down in the way that you did. And I, I think it's a lot more than just uh, students using the technology to create essays, but uh, I think a lot of people will hear about this technology and just assume that students will just cheat if you give them a chance, but it's more nuanced than that, isn't it? It is more nuanced than that. I think, I think that's, that sort of panic around academic integrity has certainly been the loudest 
you know, in terms of uh, the conversation right now with regards to, you know, the impact on post-secondary education and education more generally. Um, but the, there is a, a much more nuanced conversation about, you know, just the broader impacts of technology um, and education, which is a conversation that began before this technology emerged. Um, and then with regards to this particular tool, um, how, you know, as it gets more and more integrated into to the way that all of us navigate through the world. And I think it's, I think it's, you know, uh, intervening in, in our lives um, very quickly. And I think we're going to be coming, you know, f- uh, very familiar with this tool, these kind of capabilities um, very quickly. And so as it becomes part of the way that we just navigate the world and, you know, navigate education, what other impacts might it have in terms of, you know, the kinds of skills that um, it might develop and the kinds of skills that maybe it might hinder. Right. And I, I'll get Fenella into the conversation. Um, let's talk about some of those, some of those impacts that artificial intelligence, uh, is going to have on us. Cause I guess one of the concerns is that if a lot of content is being made that we're dealing with, like a lot of people talk about lawyers, you know, like you could have an artificial intelligence, uh, generated lawyer. Um, it's using stuff from the internet. So it's taking, I guess, whatever the, is the loudest voice and that's not necessarily a good thing is it yeah i mean certainly uh th- that's one of the, the the big questions is you know the degree to which uh this is going to spread misinformation um and the question about where the content is coming from it's not necessarily accessing um you know journal uh articles that are peer-reviewed because those are behind paywalls um, and so a lot of the content that it's accessing is sort of publicly available, and that isn't necessarily uh, coming from um, credible or uh, peer-reviewed, rigorous uh, research um, or sources of information. And so, um, and, and oftentimes when the content is generated, it's, it's not citing uh, the sources either, or if they are, it's, it's not correct or accurate. Uh, some of the content is quite nonsensical. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there's there's definitely a, a lot of um, issues with with accuracy and, and truth and misinformation, disinformation, which has already been an issue on the internet for quite some time, and it's just sort of um, amplifying that that problem. Um, and then, of course, uh, there's also, as you said, just the the, the problem of. Uh, loudest voices being um, some of the, the the key content that's being generated, um, and so underrepresented voices may not um, also be uh, represented in in whatever is generated uh, in relation to a particular prompt. Right, and I, I guess uh, Alpha, that might be something that that's very concerning because the loudest voices are usually, I guess, English white voices. Exactly. And and this is, um, you know, I think, again, one of the silver linings of, the, of what's happened over the last, you know, um, few months is that um, we have more people participating in the public debate about just technology in general. Um, but one of the the critiques of, you know, AI more generally, in this particular tool in particular, um, is that uh, is the extent to which it is, as Fennell was saying, amplifying pre-existing issues, including... Um, uh, the the platforming and deplatforming of particular perspectives. So uh, there are lots of very important debates happening about the intersection of equity 
uh, and uh, artificial intelligence or, you know, lar- large language models that are an important part of the conversation. And I think, you know, I know we'll, we'll probably get to a discussion about the educational space more specifically. And so I think students need to also be aware of that, that this is not just neutral information, but actually it has, um, there are some particular equity considerations that we need to be thinking about when understanding whose perspectives we're hearing and whose perspectives we're not. Yeah, it's a very complicated thing. It's it's not just a computer spewing out essays, but I guess I'll, I'll throw this out to both of you. Maybe we'll start with Alpha, but uh, how serious a problem is just the basic thing of, of students cheating? Because it's 20 bucks a month, I think, U.S. to to get this chat GPT. How serious a problem is using it to cheat? Um, I mean, uh, my personal preference is, is kind of broadening the the question and and thinking, because I think when we start with that um, as the primary concern, it really narrows our scope uh, in terms of, you know, both the, you know, legitimate issues and problems, um, but also just the broader change that we're seeing and the broader questions that we should be asking. So, um, you know, at this point, there is still a free, you know, version of it. So it's it's not even at the point. I mean, the, the access is quite wide. Um, and university administrations and individual educators are absolutely um, focused and, and zeroed in on the issue of academic integrity and cheating. We certainly, we just do not have the data yet to understand, you know, how much of an actual problem it is um, because, you know, it's, it's, it's all happened so quickly. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's reasonable to assume that a, a significant or, or a number um, who knows at this stage what number, a number of students are using it. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that, uh, at least from my perspective, and I think there is a range of perspectives on this. From my perspective, I think there are ways to use it that don't necessarily cross ethical lines as far right. as academic integrity. The question is, we're all still grappling with what that line is. And so that's something that universities are still sorting out. Some universities um, have come out right at the gate and banned it. Um, other universities are in the process of sorting out what their policies are and trying to integrate it into their academic integrity policy, you know, policies and procedures. Um, and of course, there are also um, there are also everyday emerging technologies um, promising to help to detect and and you know catch uh, plagiarism um, uh, that might be generated from these tools. And so, you, but you know that technology is still quite nascent, so um, it's not quite incorporated into the university um, you know, system just yet, but that's probably on the horizon as well. And how about you, Fenella? I, I guess one of the things is there's new software that can detect it, too, but what are your thoughts, Fenella? Yeah, um, I think to add on to what Alpha's saying here, there's, there's ChatGPT has come about um, it, it, together with the confluence of other factors, right? So we, we come off of a pandemic where we were uh, teaching online or learning online for quite some time. Um, students came back and there are a lot of students who were questioning the um, degree to which they need to be in person for all of their classes, the value of a uh, higher education degree, why they need to be, tr- uh, especially for commuter campuses like York University, University of Toronto, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, for instance, um, students are traveling from distances to come to class. And so there's been a lot of sort of pushback or questioning about um, why they, they need to be there for, for all of their classes, particularly if they're mostly lecture-based. For a long time, students have been signaled that, you know, by society, by universities, that the key kind of 
um, impetus for pursuing a degree is to uh, get a job after graduation. And so there's also the question of sort of what is the value, the inherent value of higher education in and of itself without the kind of uh, once you graduate, you get a job or not. And um, I think that it, it, once it becomes sort of a, a checkbox to get a job, there's a question about how I can bypass some of these things in order to, to get to the end end goal, the, you know, the finish line. Um, right. And then there's also like rising tuition, there's like rising mental health crisis, things of that nature. Um, and, and so, you know, when there's a lot of pressure uh, at the institution, students are also going to look for ways to try and alleviate some of that pressure. Um, faculty are also experiencing burnout um, and, and a lot of, you know, increased workload, um, things of that nature. So there's there are just a lot of things happening at the at the universities uh, across Canada, across the globe that I think um, really uh, make this this question of chat GPT um, more than uh, more complex than than just about cheating um, and, and the impact of AI. Right. And that kind of brings me to my next question. Alpha, uh, uh, Fenella kind of touched on this, but education in general, uh, do you think AI and, and the internet in, in general, with all the information that's available to us and the, I think they're called MOOCs, the, these free courses, and some of them are quite high level that you can just access online. Do you think that, uh, the model for post-secondary post-secondary education is going to change and what people are going to question why they have to spend thousands and thousands of dollars for a degree they are questioning that they, they certainly are um and i think there are legitimate questions um you know i i do hope that the model changes we've had a pretty static model for a long time in the face of very rapid social change technological change so i don't think we can afford to not change um, and there have been, you know, slow conversations and, and experimentation around what those changes might look like. But I think what this um, specific technological development is doing is really accelerating some of those conversations and putting some urgency around it. And part of what Fanel and I have been thinking about in, in our work together um, is, is just being really um, prudent about making sure that students are at the center of those conversations. So I think um, some of what we observed um, early on in the last few months is that there was so much excitement as well, right? Because, I mean, if anyone has not played with the tool... Um, you know, if, once you do play with a tool, you realize it, it's, it's incredible, right? There's, there's a lot, it's a lot of challenges, um, but also a lot of possibilities. Um, and so there's, there's been a lot of excitement about the possibilities, including pedagogical and educational possibilities, but also a lot of fear. Um, and so I think that's created a bit of an impulse to kind of hunker down as, as educators and, and, and administrators and at, you know, in educational institutions and figure out this problem. But I think, you know, um, some of that, you know, urgency maybe has, you know, put us in a position where we're forgetting to actually engage students in those conversations. They have a lot to say. They're more than just consumers. They're, they're important stakeholders in this. And, um, and so, you know, I think that the models of education more broadly and post-secondary education in particular do need to change. But I, you know, we are particularly interested in a process of change that involves, you know, student perspectives really driving that conversation. Right. And Fenella, in 30 seconds or less, how positive are you about artificial uh, intelligence in education? <laughs> Sorry. Um, that's a big question. <laughs> the, the I don't know about 30 seconds or less. <laughs> uh, I, I think that 
uh, I'm positive about the fact that the conversation is is happening and that we are having critical dialogue about what's happening in our in our world, in society in general around AI, and then how it's impacting um, education. I, I think higher education has no choice but to um, to respond to this. And hopefully, my I think our hope, uh, Alpha and I, is that um, universities become less reactive and more okay. kind of leaders in this. You know, this past Monday was a huge anniversary for something you probably take for granted. We all do. It was April 3rd, exactly 50 years ago, when a guy named Martin Cooper was out on the streets of New York and he made the first ever cell phone call from a handheld portable wireless telephone. That was 1973. It's amazing to think that if you were at that exact same spot in Manhattan right now, you could probably look around and count at least 10 or 20 people on their phones. Of course, the cell phone that they used 50 years ago was a little different from the one that's in your pocket. Now, this 1973 version weighed two and a half pounds and it was 11 inches long. It's a good weapon. But the great thing about the cell phone call was Martin Cooper worked for Motorola. He was an engineer working on cellular technology, and he decided to mark the occasion of the very first phone call, not by phoning a loved one or the president. He decided the first call would be to the head of the cell phone program over at AT AT&T. He phoned the competition to rub it in. Hilarious. It's incredible to think how far that humble brick of a cell phone uh, has become the cultural changing device that it is now. And to talk about that and where the cell phone is headed is our friend Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Hi, Carmi. How are you? Hi, Martin. Great to be with you. I'm looking at my cell phone thinking I'm really glad it's not like that original Dynatac that he made that call on. We would both be in trouble if it was. Yeah, I remember those phones and they were just <laughs> so big and you you didn't think back then you didn't go, "Oh, that's a big phone." You just thought that's what a phone had to be. <laughs> yeah, and I remember early in my journalism career, I was still a teenager and it was the you know, early 90s and uh you know, we got one in our newsroom and I went out and they sort they said, "Hey, instead of calling in your report on a payphone, just use this." You know, we're trying it out. And I remember I, I was living in Montreal at the time where I grew up and I pulled the phone out after I, you know, I was reading my script to sort of call it back into the newsroom. And I, I pulled the phone out, make the call, and I'm standing there on the sidewalk and literally people stop dead in their tracks to, to watch me. I, I almost felt <laughs> like a busker. It was the weirdest thing. And for a while there, for much of the 90s, that was kind of the thing. And it took a while for it to become a normal social thing that somebody would pull out a cell phone. Now we don't even give it a second thought. But back then, it was a, it was almost like a, like, like a, like a, like a stopping your tracks kind of moment. And it was remarkable to sort of see jaded urban dwellers just kind of look up and go, whoa, something has really changed here. This person looks like, you know, it's almost like he's got sci-fi in his hands. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny how when we look at these things, uh, I know I do. I sort of don't see the full impact that they're going to have because most of us looked at the cell phone thought, wow, we can make phone calls from wherever, whenever we want. But we didn't think that it was going to be, you know, the the entire world at our fingertips, that we were going to take pictures with it, all the things that we do with the phone. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Uh, sometimes you'll see this go around online, this, you know, ad from Radio Shack from the 80s with all these things that you could buy, these gadgets. 
And then you fast forward to today and they, they laugh. They're like, all of that capability is now built into a smartphone. And, you know, we didn't foresee in 1973 that, you know, the, the humble phone would be able to do data. We, no one really understood what wireless internet was. It wasn't even a thing. Um, you know, no one really understood that it would go well beyond just voice calls. And, you know, the fact that it has, I really, I, I think it, it speaks to ingenuity. Of course, Canada had a huge role to play in that. It was the Blackberry that really drove us beyond voice, showed that you could do email and text messages messages on a mobile device as well and do it elegantly. Uh, and, 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 you know, the rest, of course, is history. The cool thing is, is that Dr. Cooper is now 94 years old. And, you know, periodically, whenever this anniversary comes up, he gets quoted. He loves to talk. He, he travels the world tells the story of how he made that first call, um, and he's always too happy to comment on how it's gone beyond just a phone um, and how it really has revolutionized the way we live. And he's really optimistic about how it can be used in future for medical advancements, for, you know, other things like healthcare to, to help, you know, so- social order, to drive communication between society. He's a big optimist in terms of where we go next with cell phone technology, with smartphones, with wireless tech. Um, and he really believes that, you know, the story is just being written, even though it's 50 years since he made that call. Yeah, I guess it, it really is just being written because I read an interview with him. He was talking about uh, being able to charge our cell phones with our bodies. That was what he yeah. thought was going to happen. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, if you think about sort of the paradigm today, you know, it, you know, Every cell phone or every smartphone kind of has the same layout. Right? It's a slab of glass. It's a touch screen. It's charged by a battery. It connects wirelessly to a wireless network, and you can make voice uh, voice calls, texts, and apps, and all that. Um, but you know the, the, that really hasn't changed for the most part in the last ten or fifteen years, really since the first iPhone was released. And what he's saying is, if you look at all the components that go into a smartphone today, there's no reason why they can't be broken apart and eventually embedded in us. So for example, you know, we can have a microphone that's embedded in us so that we don't have to hold a phone in front of us. We can actually talk to it. The actual communication can be an embedded device as well, uh, or it could be a wearable. So there's nothing that says that the form factor has to be a smartphone in future. And I think it really is only a matter of time. Once displays get better, we can incorporate them into glasses or 3D holographic projectors, uh, you know, augmented reality projection in front of us so we can walk down the street and literally have that information projected in front of us. I think it's only a matter of time before we no longer carry that smartphone in our pocket or walk around like praying mantises holding it in front of us below our heads. Um, and I think he's absolutely right. It's not so much the device itself. It's what are the capabilities that can be baked into smaller devices that can then be incorporated into things that we use and wear every day, or in some cases wearing it, it could be us. And those components, rather than charging them up, would be powered by our body. Yeah, and I guess talking about medical advances, if it's so tied into our body, I guess it, there will be opportunities to, you know, to tell us when we're having, you know, heart problems or, or all sorts of things. It's funny, since the Apple Watch first became a thing, and what is an Apple Watch but a scaled-down smartphone, if, you know, we're really getting overly simplistic here, but, you know, we've seen that technology being used in the medical space. That almost seems to be what I like to call the killer app of the technology. It's the thing that makes us want to buy it because it's a use that's so uh, impressive, that's so life-changing that we literally can't imagine life without it. Uh, and so when you look at the, at, at the Apple Watch, every few months there's a new announcement of, 
how it's being used for uh, cardiac research and, and early detection of cardiac events and early detection of Alzheimer's and, and uh, early detection of Parkinson's disease. And the reason being, and, and I think that that's where this promise lies, wearable technologies that we've got on us 24-7, because they're collecting data all the time. And if you go to your doctor's office for, say, a blood test, that's only a, a single point in time, and that doesn't really tell the doctor a whole lot. But if you're wearing a device that can track, say, your blood pressure over time, that can give the doctor so much more to work with. And that data can be shared with your doctor and they can see that events are happening or they can see patterns in the data and say, hey, you, you know, you're not feeling anything right now, but you should get to the hospital now because the data is telling us there's an issue. So rather than simply reacting to medical crises after the crisis has occurred, we can use the data that's being collected by all these amazing devices that we wear all the time to proactively treat ourselves and not get sick in the first place. Oh, we see an indicator. Let's go get that taken care of. And that's a revolution in healthcare at a time when the healthcare system really needs it. It's under pressure. Let's use technology to change the, you know, change the order of things and really give advantage to us because right now the way we've been doing healthcare isn't really working all that well. Technology can certainly level that playing field. Interesting. And, and it's certainly reading a lot of data already. I, I was talking to a friend of mine about uh, Fitbits and steps mm-hmm. and all that. And he said, oh, well, there's a thing on your iPhone. And I said, oh, really? And he showed me the app and he opened it up and he said, yeah, you had 2000 steps or whatever yesterday. And it was already reading, even though I didn't know the app existed, it was on my phone and it was already reading how much I was walking. And it, it was kind mm-hmm. of a creepy feeling. And that kind of brings us to uh, security and the iPhone. And we were looking at that uh, very first cell phone call 50 years ago. The one thing about that call was that the person who was picking up at the other end didn't have to check to make sure the call wasn't coming from somebody claiming to be from Canada Revenue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to cell phone scammers. Carmi, are are we winning the war? Uh, let's let's say we're treading water. Uh, you know, some days we 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 get a leg up, and other days things happen that make me shake my head. And unfortunately, it's it's a battle that continues to rage. It's intensifying almost by the day. And every time we seem to get a new tool in our toolkit to protect ourselves against scammers, the scammers seem to figure out a way around it and they raise their game as well. So back and forth, cops and robbers, tit for tat, you name it, the what we like to call the threat landscape continues to worsen. And we as as individuals, as citizens of, you know, digital citizens, we need to you know, have our eyes wide, wide open. Um, and and be aware of that threat when we do use digital tools. Otherwise, we are at risk, and that risk grows almost on a constant basis. And it's such a, a vague term, cell phone scammers. I get calls all the time that come from uh, Grenada and Estonia, and I just don't answer them, and I don't know what they are. I don't really know what they want. I just assume they're scams. Yeah, and, and see, the scary thing here is that it used to be, you know, it showed up on your call display as from somewhere far away. You could tell that it wasn't local. You could tell that the person on the other end had an accent, perhaps. And so those were what I like to call the tells, right? Like the obvious, oh, of course, this is a scam, so I'm just going to hang up. 
But now what's happening, if you look at call display, it looks like it's coming from your local area. It's, it looks like a local call. The person on the other end might sound just like you, might sound like someone who you probably interacted with at the bank or in law enforcement or at your kid's school. And so, you know, what they're doing is they're, they're changing their tactics. They're becoming much more sophisticated, recognizing that we can, we can tell when it looks like it's coming from, from Nigeria, but we certainly can't tell when it looks like it's coming from around the corner. Um, and it makes it more likely that A, we will pick up the call and B, we will actually engage with them and they stand a better chance of getting through our defenses and convincing us that this isn't a scam, that this is legit. That's the scary thing is in some cases, it's hard to tell the real from the not real. And in some cases, that makes it a lot easier for these scammers to separate us from our money. And it's probably impossible to pinpoint, you know, the one scam that's the worst one. But give me an example of a scam that that actually works. Yeah. So, I mean, there are like, I mean, you know, you, you touched on the CRA scam, there are home improvement scams, employment scams, buy name brand items for cheap scams. I mean, there's a whole litany of them. The one that really jumps out at me uh, as being particularly worrisome now, and because it is so frighteningly effective, we call it the grandparent scam. And that's where someone picks up the phone, you know, the phone rings, you pick it up, and there's someone on the other end claiming to be either a police officer or, you know, someone, your grandchild's been in, a, in an accident or in some kind of emergency, uh, need, is, is in jail now, needs money for bail, or is in hospital, needs money for medical care, and uh, you need to send the money now. And here's what, you know, here are the instructions go. Uh, and in many cases, of course, that's a pretty distressing thing to hear. So, you know, you just go, oh, of course it's the cops. Oh, my God, I can't say no to my grandson. And you send the money, uh, only to find out that they are not law enforcement officers. They've taken the money and run. Uh, there's a new sort of twist to that now is that uh, they'll use something called voice cloning, where you actually hear your your grandchild, it's your grandchild's voice saying, Grandma, I'm in trouble. You need to bail me out. And it sounds just like them. And it can go on for 30 seconds. And it could include some some facts about your grandchild that you would think only you would know. And it makes it even more real. And it makes you more likely to pay the money. Uh, but of course, that isn't your grandchild talking. That's a technology called voice cloning. They went online, found a sample of their voice, which all of us have out there, and they created this from this AI tool uh, and used it to perpetrate the ruse that they are, in fact, real when they're not. Uh, million, you know, millions of dollars across Canada are being stolen literally by the day, uh, including my neighbor who walked up to my house, knocked on my door earlier in the pandemic and says she, too, had been victimized in that way. It's the scariest thing going, and it almost seems to get worse by the day. Yeah, that is just horrifying. And the thing I'm hearing there is is the gap between older people and young people, because I, I think younger people, they, they're they very suspicious. They, they don't even pick up half the time. They wait until someone leaves a text message message or a message. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but older people, they come from a time when the phone rang, you answered it. Exactly. And, you know, the, and I think that's really the, you know, when we talk about, gee, what do we do about these kinds of scams, especially as the, the, the criminals get better at their job, is that we, we as consumers, as, as potential victims, we need to start leading with cynicism. And even just saying that, frankly, kills me because I'm an optimistic person. I don't want to believe the worst in humanity. But when I pick up the phone, I have, you know, we all have to stop assuming that the person on the other end is who they say they are. In other words, just because you've called me doesn't mean that I'm going to believe who you are. You must prove to me who you are before I accept that you are, in fact, legit. So, you know, it's, it's you know, Ronald Reagan used to say trust but verify. It's actually the opposite. It's ver- verify first, then trust. 
and then when you get a call like this, is, is you know, by that same token, we shouldn't believe everything that we hear. In other words, if someone calls and says your grandchild's been in a horrible accident, I was, okay, I'm going to hang up now and I'm going to call my grandchild and see how she's doing. Uh, and of course, you know, they'll go, Grandma, what's going on? And, and you'll realize now that that was an attempted, uh, you know, that was an attempted fraud. So we have to sort of have the courage to A, not believe what we hear on the phone. It's okay to be impolite. And then we have to have the courage to bail on these calls and then do our own checking, right? Go online, treat them, Google them, look them up on LinkedIn, get their names, get their numbers. If they don't want to share, that should be another tell. Again, because we started off cynical, we're looking, we're probing, we're asking those questions, we're challenging them, uh, and we're making it a lot harder for them to get inside that circle of trust that all of us have. As long as we do that, then we stand a much better chance of, of fighting off this kind of victimization. The problem here, and you touched on it when you first asked the question, is that a lot of families aren't having those conversations with members of, of at all ages. So grandkids and kids aren't having those conversations with parents and grandparents who may not have grown up with these technologies, may not be familiar with this. Whereas if we have those conversations, when the phone rings, they'll go, oh, I remember the kids were talking about that. Okay, prove who you are. Have you been in a Zeller store yet? They've been closed for years, but they're back. There are 25 Zeller stores across Canada, either open now or about to open. They're a little different than the Zellers uh, you might remember growing up. They seem a bit more upscale, uh, but you get that nostalgic feeling when you see that Zeller sign, don't you? At least I do. And while Zellers is attempting a comeback, yet another big American retail chain is packing up and leaving Canada. First, it was Target. That was about 2015. And now it's Nordstrom's. They are now in the process of closing all 13 stores across the country by the summer. And it makes you wonder, why do these big retailers fail here in Canada. David Soberman is a professor of marketing at the University of Toronto, and he's with us now. Hi, David. How are you? Very well. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. So uh, looking at the list of the big stores that are successful in this country, especially the American ones, Home Depot, Walmart, and Costco, and, and comparing that to Nordstrom's, which seems a lot more high-end, it seems like the bargain stores seem to do well, but not the fancy ones. Is that too simplistic an idea? Yes. I mean, I think that a lot of the failures have to do with specific errors that the, um, the firms that have made initiatives have made. And it's hard to sort of um, localize it to a specific level of store or type of store because there's also some high-end U.S. retailers that have done well in Canada as well. Right. And I guess the Hudson's Bay is now an American retailer. Well, I suppose. I think we still see of it as being Canadian-based. I think the ownership is uh, focused in the U.S., but the uh, I would still say the vast majority of that company's activities are in Canada. Mm -hmm. So when talking about why big department stores close, I guess the big elephant in the room uh, when you have a conversation about retail is online shopping. I mean, is is the threat of online shopping overstated or maybe understated? Well, I would say it's, it's perhaps understated, but it's what I would say is it's very serious. It's a big problem. Almost any uh, company that's trying to succeed 
uh, is going to face very um, tough online retail competition. And um, frequently that entails a competitor which has a better selection and lower prices. So unless you're able to offer something in store, in person that customers value, it's an uphill, it's an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. Then do you, do you think that it's something that people might return to the way they return to vinyl records and stuff? They realize that online shopping is just not human enough and that the, there might be a resurgence of people going to the mall. Yes. Well, I think given, especially with the pandemic, hopefully coming to a complete end, people are, in fact, returning to the malls. But it's not like an on and off switch. People are creatures of habit. And after almost three years of not shopping and not going to malls, people are returning, but not as quickly as traditional retailers would like. That being said, there are just certain categories and certain classes of products, which I think are ideally suited to buying online. I mean, one obvious one would be, um, you know, records and books, which is what really Amazon made its name with. But there are other things when you know exactly what you're getting and you don't need to inspect it and look at it in person. These are the ideal things that you can order online. But there's also all sorts of things that you can't see that you do want to be able to touch and feel and smell, etc., and those sorts of uh, products are not as well suited to online retailers. Yeah, I see what you mean. And you say records and books. Uh, uh, I think nothing will replace going into a really nice bookstore or, or a record store for that matter. But I know what you mean. And the thing for me, Amazon, things like, uh, you know, filters for your furnace. To me, that's an Amazon thing. Absolutely, because once you can actually specify the product, you know what it is, what you want. All you have to do is plug in the details into the web page, and the thing will be delivered to your house. As I say, there's all sorts of things, from things that we eat to things that we wear to things that we might actually want to decorate our houses that we actually would rather see in person. And, of course, anytime you actually want a salesperson to help you, that's also a situation where an online retailer is, is, is at a disadvantage. So I think when you are sort of embarking on a retail venture, those are the sorts of things you need to think about quite carefully. Yeah, things like running shoes. I've bought running shoes online before, and the color is different. <laughs> it's, it's very weird. Well, exactly. And sometimes, too, even, even though theoretically when you get a 10-and-a-half shoe – which is what I the size I wear, they don't all fit the same. And so it does pay to actually be able to try them on. So that's a good point. Yeah, though, if you have size 14 feet, which is what I have, yeah. um, it's really hard. <laughs> you, go in, you go into a retail store and they look at you like you're an alien. And uh, so you find a, a brand that fits you at 14 and then you order them online. That's my thing. Uh, but we're talking retail. We're not talking about my feet. We're getting lots of texts from people who are uh, who have opinions about 
about online shopping. A lot of people say they like the brick and mortar. They like to support it. They pay local taxes and hire local people, says one person. Um, and this is an interesting one. We've got David Soberman, a professor of marketing at the University of Toronto with us. And this text, David, I think is interesting. Online purchases also have product reviews to help make a quality decisions. The stores do not. And some in-store people don't know their product in some cases. And that's kind of an interesting thought because are you seeing as a uh, somebody who watches marketing trends, are you seeing kind of a merging of the online and the brick and mortar store? Uh, indeed. In fact, most of the successful major retailers in Canada are also operating online stores at the same time. And in fact, there's synergy going on whereby people may in fact check things out online and then go to the store and buy it. Alternatively, people might actually go to the store and look at things and then order it online. So both types of things are taking place. But what it actually means is that if you want to be a successful uh, retail initiative in Canada, you really need to have both of these things working in sync. Right. And in terms of uh, people going into the stores, into the malls versus shopping online, how do we compare to other countries? How's Canada doing in that department? We're probably very, very similar to the United States. I think that um, on average, uh, something like, I believe, 15% of our retail spending is online. Now, there are some countries in Asia that are lower and a couple of countries in Europe that are close to that. But we have um, one of the most um, developed online sectors in the world. And largely that is because of Amazon, which, while it was founded in the United States, also immediately affected the way we did things in Canada. And speaking of Nordstrom's leaving, uh, a lot of the Nordstrom's in the big cities were right downtown, big spaces, the Toronto, the Eaton Centre in Toronto, uh, Pacific Centre in Vancouver. They took up a huge footprint. And for them to close, uh, it may take a while for a new store to come in. It may not even be a store. Um, what does that do for the local businesses around it? I think it actually makes life quite difficult because one of the things that a lot of malls have been feeling is they've been feeling a lot of pressure due to the fact that some of the major flagship stores that in some sense underpin the malls are no longer there. And what we're talking about is you know Nordstrom's, but if you go back um, even into a recent past, you have companies like Sears and even Eaton's that were flagship stores and malls, and they're no longer there. So that indeed uh, makes life difficult for the smaller stores, because one of the things that draws people to the mall is the flagship store. Right. And and did you notice, because I, I read that the Vancouver store was actually quite successful, the Nordstrom store, but some of the other ones weren't, and it caused them to just pull up stakes for the whole thing. Do you know which, was it the downtown stores doing well and the, and the suburban stores not doing as well? I It's hard to say. I think overall, I mean, and I think when you make a decision like that, you're making a decision about overall how you're performing. And one of the things about Nordstrom is they had a really very, very limited footprint in Canada. When you have a very limited footprint, 
it really impairs your ability to market effectively, and it also impairs your ability to get people coming into the store and also ordering online. All of those things don't work as well when you have a very limited footprint. So even though certain stores might have done well, I think it's really hard to sort of be in Canada given the fact that we have a very small population compared to the U.S., and it's spread out over an incredibly large geographic area. You really need to have that intensity in order to be successful. Right. And in Vancouver, there's still a lot of questions about who's going to replace it. It's probably like that right across the country. Um, but one of the names that's being thrown around is uh, IKEA, which surprised me. But in Toronto, they have a downtown IKEA store. And it's obviously a little different than the suburban IKEAs. But is that a trend where you see those big box stores having these kind of urban style uh, versions of themselves? Well, it's an, an interesting idea, and certainly when you think of IKEA, it's definitely a draw. It draws a lot of people in, and so in that regard, as being part of a mall, I think that's quite an interesting idea. But the thing is, most of the IKEA stores are so large, they even make many of the department stores that we think of seem small. So it'll be interesting to see how they manage that. It may be more of a limited IKEA store as opposed to the sort of full full service store ikeas that we see sort of in the suburbs of toronto yeah and i guess the big thing is you're shopping and you don't have a car because you're downtown so a lot of the shoppers they don't have a car so they're just shopping for little things but if you're shopping at ikea uh in a in a suburban center you most definitely have a car that's a great point i mean i think one of the things that ikea does of course is they do offer delivery But indeed, you're right, a lot of people don't want to use a delivery, and so they have their cars there. So typically, the IKEA stores are coupled with extensive parking lots and pickup zones where you can pick up all of the things that you've bought. So it's hard to know how they would do that. But as I said before, even for a company like IKEA, they're in a competitive marketplace as well, and they're dealing with competitors like Yisk, which has smaller stores that offer a lot of things, probably a lot of things that people can carry out. So the last thing you want to do is sort of lose business because people that only want to buy things that you can carry decide not to come to your store. So, I mean, I guess in all of these different um, sectors, you have a different nature of competition and each, each, each competitor's perspective is different based on who they're facing. Yeah, and from a retail standpoint, IKEA has that bold strategy where they make you do the entire store. <laughs> where you do, you can't go in, grab something, and get out. You have to walk the entire store. So I assume they won't do that in a downtown setting. Exactly. I mean, I think that's an, you know a great great point. I mean, I I like IKEA, but I find it very frustrating when you want to go in and just get one thing, and you have to walk for about twenty five minutes before you find it. So. One of the things is they may have a different format for the sort of downtown store, which allows you to buy sort of kitchenware and household goods, and they have a limited amount of furniture that you might be able to order for delivery. Right. And I mentioned Zellers. Uh, They have 25 new stores across Canada. Um, uh, Nordstrom's has 13. Uh, But Zellers, you know, they're very hopeful. It's a brand new thing. What's your prediction for Zellers in Canada? Well, it's hard to tell. I mean, we have to think back that the reason that 
Zellers closed and basically most of the locations were replaced by Target was because it wasn't doing well. It was not really meeting the competitive threat at the time, which was primarily Walmart and also to a degree Canadian Tire and Amazon, I suppose. But I think the interesting thing is the Bay is trying to um, ratchet up the amount of store traffic that it has. And because the new concept for Zellers is sort of an in-store location within the Bay store, and because people right now, given inflation and given the pressure of trying to sort of pay the bills at the end of the month that people are feeling right now, I think it's an interesting idea, an interesting experiment to try to get people going through the Bay store. And with retail, that's still the number one thing. If you get somebody into your store, that's probably 75% of the battle because if they're in your store, they may not buy everything, but if they buy a few things, those are a few things they're not buying it at the competitors. NASA is planning a flyby of the moon next year. And one of the astronauts on that crew, I'm sure you've heard, is a Canadian, Jeremy Hansen. The launch next year, Artemis, Artemis II, will see a few firsts. It'll be the trial launch for NASA's Orion spacecraft and the first mission to take humans beyond low Earth orbit since, I believe, Apollo 17 in 1972. I might be wrong, but we'll, we'll find out. The Artemis II launch will make sure everything works up there and then set the stage for putting humans once again on the surface of the moon. It's exciting stuff. And to give us some insight into why this is such a big deal, Gordon Osinski is the Earth Sciences Professor at the University of Western Ontario and the director of the Canadian Lunar Research Network. Gordon, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, now as the director of the Canadian Lunar Research Network, this is kind of a dumb question, but how excited are you about this launch? Oh, I'm yeah, incredibly excited. I was about to say over the moon, which would be a bad pun, right? But, uh, <laughs> you can it's, do it. It's def- yeah, I just did. Um, no, it's, I think, one of the most exciting days uh, for the Canadian space program in, in decades. And I think, you know, when we look back uh, following the, su- the successful launch, it will be a successful launch right in a couple of years, uh, we'll look back and I think it will rank up there amongst the moments, you know, Canada's first astronaut in, in space and maybe launch of the Canada arm and things. Yeah, and so this is the first ca- Canadian uh, in the, like, below beyond Earth orbit, right? And so, I mean, the really neat thing here, and you were talking about some records that will be broken on this mission, is that this mission here will make Canada only the second country on Earth after the U.S. to send astronauts into what we call deep space, um, because we have the Apollo astronauts, and then, you know, since then, for the past 50 years, Yes, we've had a lot of astronauts in space from many different countries, but they've been restricted to the International Space Station and low Earth orbit with the shuttle flights. And, you know, that's a mere 400 kilometers away from the surface of the Earth. And here, you know, this is going to make Canada the second country after the U.S. So it's a really big coup, I think, for Canada. Yeah, pretty cool. So give us a sort of overview of this mission and the missions that are going to follow it. Because this one is just is doing a, they're going to fly around the moon, right? 
Absolutely, yes. So this is the second mission in the Artemis program. So the, the whole program is called Artemis, and you know the goal is to get humans back on the surface of the moon and then eventually onto Mars. Uh, some of your listeners might remember uh, middle of November of last year, we had the first ever launch of Artemis, and that really tested out NASA's big new rocket for the first time. And it did launch the Orion uh, capsule, which is where the humans go, but of course there were no people in it. So that was the test, uh, and then we're going to take a pretty big jump for Artemis II, which is to put people on board. And uh, we're going to spend about two days kind of circling Earth in this really high orbit, uh, which will already make the astronauts just on that first couple of days, uh, the people who have gone further since 1972. And then if all looks good, you know, they'll fire the thrusters on the Orion uh, capsule and send them on a flyby of the moon, as you say. So. It's kind of like they did with Apollo and Apollo 8 mission. Um, Apollo 8 went into orbit. Uh, Artemis 2 is going to do a flyby. But as you mentioned, it's going to go further past the moon. And so when they hit that far point on the other side of the moon, that will be the furthest that any humans have gone before ever, period. Right. And then, yeah, so, you know, just this test flight, as it were, Artemis 2 is going to break uh, a number of records. And as you said earlier, if all goes well on Artemis 2, about a year later, we should have Artemis 3 uh, going back to the surface. Wow. And and the the fact, I think it was 1972, the last time men were on the moon? Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, Apollo 17, 1972. And as you mentioned, men, right? And, uh, you know, the reason why this is exciting, too, is that we have the first woman and first person of color on Artemis 2, and that will be the same for Artemis 3 going to the surface as well. Uh, you know, NASA stated that there'll be a woman going to the surface of the moon in that mission, which is, is really exciting. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, when I think about 1972, because <laughs> we were talking earlier about the first cell phone call, which was 1973, and the cell phone was, you know, like huge. It was like a brick. I can't imagine the technology advancement in computers and all the things that are needed to get astronauts to the moon um it must be incredible the the amount of computing power that you have now compared to 1972 obviously yeah exactly and i mean if anyone's you know watched movies like apollo 13 and things right it's, it actually boggles my mind that you know we were able to do it in the 60s and 70s uh, given the technology that they have you know the first computers and things and so yeah, this is, is night and day, uh, even compared to what's upon the International Space Station, because that's been up there so long, it's actually quite dated in terms of its computer hardware. And, you know, I'm speaking to you for, on an iPhone right now that has, you know, definitely more processing power than most of the most of the things on the space station. And, yeah, so it'll be a, a really exciting time. Lots of new technologies that will be testing in the Hawaiian spacecraft and uh will help us go further, um, for cheaper, and uh, hopefully in a sustainable way. And uh, with this new technology, would you say that it makes the mission much safer? We certainly, Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, there's a lot of fail-safes and backups built into this um, all the way from the launch, right? You know, we know for, for any mission, the launch is actually one of the most uh, dangerous parts of the mission. And so there's a lot of new technologies that have come into, you know, should anything happen, they'll be able to uh, have the astronauts escape during launch. And then all of what we call the life support systems, you know, the systems on board the Orion spacecraft to keep the uh, humans 
alive, our astronauts alive, have come a huge way in the last 50 years. Yeah, and I, I guess that's something uh, you don't like to talk about too much, but there are always dangers when you're up there. Yep. Yeah, I mean, yeah, space flight is uh, is dangerous for sure. The, there are certain risks that all of the astronauts, uh, you know, take knowingly and willingly. Um, and, uh, you know, Artemis too, for sure, because it is the first ever human mission of the Artemis program is, uh, is definitely going to carry some of those risks. So when's, when's the, uh, the flight going to happen for Artemis two? So we're hoping uh, November 2024. So it's only, you know, a year and a half, just over a year and a half away. Um, you know, they just announced the crew, so they'll be training like crazy between now and then uh, on the systems and making sure the vehicle is ready for that launch. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about uh, Jeremy Hansen and what, what it's like for someone to be chosen to be on the crew and what the next year and a half or so is going to be like. And I want to talk about Jeremy Hansen, but first we got a text from someone who said, please ask Gordon how they plan to deal with the inhospitable radiation after LEO. That means low Earth orbit. I know that because I just looked it up. Uh, that Dr. Van Allen made clear the uh, NASA scientist who the Van Allen belts are named after. So what about radiation uh, in space? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a great question. And it is, I would say, one of the biggest challenges um, with human spaceflight beyond low Earth orbit. Um, it, it gets worse the longer you go. And so, you know, the major way we get around it for short missions such as this is kind of probably three main things. Uh, first, there is some shielding in the Orion uh, capsule um, that will protect the astronauts to you know to a certain degree. Um, and then what they will be doing in kind of the days leading up to launch two is also monitoring solar activity uh, because it's those big you may have heard of solar flares. It's big events like that that send out, you know, huge doses of radiation into space. And so, you know, they'll be monitoring to make sure that. You know, there's not a lot of activity uh, going on. And then, you know, it, it is one of the risks that is just has to be accepted for this kind of mission is that, uh, you know, hopefully with the relatively short duration of, you know, 10 days to two weeks, uh, that they'll be, you know, not exposed to too much over time. As we look to Mars, um, that it is, I think, one of the major unresolved uh, engineering challenges to make sure that we can keep uh, the astronauts safe enough uh, on the six-month voyage to Mars and then on the surface too. Right. And you talk about those risks, and that's what makes it all so uh, special to to meet somebody like Jeremy Hansen, uh, the astronaut who is going to go up on this mission. And when you get to know him, when you, you see him on the news and you hear his story, he has been uh, gearing for this his entire life. And uh, I mean, tell us a little bit about Jeremy Hansen. Yeah, so I've actually had the pleasure of meeting, uh, I've met, I met Jeremy for the first time about a decade ago and I've been providing geology training, uh, for him, um, a few times up in the Canadian Arctic and then so I've got to know him pretty well. Um, if you've seen any of the interviews, uh, and as, as the, you know, the commander of the mission said, I think all of these astronauts and in particular Jeremy are incredibly humble. You know, he comes across as a very humble guy, um, you know, he's, he's, he just is that kind of person. But his background, uh, you know, he grew up, um, here in London, Ontario, uh, was raised on a farm close by. Uh, he soon kind of then took the military path, uh, was in air cadets and then in the Royal Canadian Air Force. And so, you know, certainly in terms of 
you know, the background uh, for human space flight, you know, been taking calculated risks. He was flying CF-18 uh, jets uh, for the Royal Canadian Air Force. And, you know, just part of his training for that definitely has prepared him well for this kind of mission. Right. And tell me what his next year and a half is going to be like as they get ready for the mission. Well, I mean, I think, you know, obviously lots of training. Um, they, you know, until they were selected for this mission, you know, some of the astronauts are getting some uh, training on the various different types of spacecraft out there. But, you know, now these these four astronauts need to know the Orion spacecraft inside and out, you know. And as we talked about earlier, technology has come a long way. That also means it's going to be a lot more complicated, too. And so, you know, a lot of their time spent will absolutely be on, uh, you know, making sure um, they can deal with uh, any situation. You know, they'll be getting uh, thrown into situations where, you know, they have mock-ups, um, essentially. And, you know, just emergencies will come up and they'll have to figure out how to deal with them, you know, in, in a training regime. And so I think, you know, that'll be the big thing that they're doing for the next uh, year and a half. They also actually really neatly, Jeremy said this in one of their interviews, you know, the crew will be working with the, the engineers who are finalizing the spacecraft, too. You know, so really getting to know things down to the nuts and bolts level. Right. Because I guess when you're in space, the phrase you do not want to hear is, what does this button do? That that just wouldn't <laughs> yeah, fly. Sure. So nope. let, let's talk about the uh, Orion spacecraft. This is the first launch of the Orion. Tell us why is this special? Uh, so it actually, the, the spacecraft itself did go up on uh, Artemis 1. And so if you saw uh, pictures of that mission, the spacecraft that was uh, went around the moon, just with no people on board. So, you know, they did have it up there. Um, there was It was obviously instrumented, you know, lots of sensors to make sure, okay, you know, is there oxygen flowing? Would our astronauts be alive on the spacecraft? What are the temperatures and things doing? Um but, you know, having said that, it, it looks, if you've seen pictures, it's not too different from, you know, the Apollo capsules that took astronauts to the moon the first time around. Uh, it is bigger. Um, so um, the big difference here, of course, is that there were four astronauts on Artemis, whereas there was only three on uh, Apollo. But, you know, the shape, the design, the, there is a lot of heritage from Apollo because it worked. Yeah. And I, the thing I'm most excited about is when you do finally land on the moon, the technology involved with the videotape is, or I, see how I, I still call it videotape. That's, uh, and probably we all do, but just the, the images, the video images that we're going to see are going to be so much different than those old images. It, it's probably going to be quite mind blowing, isn't it? I, yeah, I think so. And again, even from the Artemis 1 mission, if you just kind of Google that mission and uh, search for images, they're so crisp and high definition in color that they almost don't look real. And so, you know, we have images that were kind of selfies of the spacecraft because they had cameras on the edge of the solar panels. And just those images of the Orion spacecraft, of the moon, the Earth in the distance of, you know, the heavily cratered lunar terrain were impressive. And, you know, I can't imagine the, the type of, you know, high definition color video that we'll get when they land on the moon. Like you say, it will be not those grainy black and white uh, uh, TVs that, uh, you know, um, uh, fathers and, you know, uh, grandparents age and uh, parents age we're looking at. This will be super high definition. Yeah. Are we going to see astronauts on Instagram up there? 
I would, I would think so. You know, the uh, the astronauts on the International Space Station, um, uh, you know, a lot of them are on social media posting things on, uh, I forget if it's Instagram, but definitely Twitter. And so, um, you know, be, I don't know if they'll be able to do it live during the Artemis mission. That's a good question, but uh, I certainly hope we'll be getting a lot of uh, pretty amazing imagery down from that mission as soon as it lands. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.